The following is brought to you by Braided Media. Weeks ago, we started on a food-focused journey, an auditory path to the plate. Inspired by taste buds and driven by culture, we foraged for culinary artists whose influence would, all at once, whet our appetites and leave us with a lingering aftertaste. What we found, almost accidentally, were a collection of activists, restaurateurs, chefs, and cooking creatives who are changing our world. Bite by Tasty Bite. There was Chef Alex Askew, whose words led us to rediscover and reimagine our relationship with food and farmer's markets. Then Easton Robinson, whose business has suffered blow after agonizing blow. He showed us what talent and resilience can do. We stepped into the spotlight and spoke with Top Chef contestant Kiki Luya who taught us how better to frame conversations on food sustainability. Our plates were made full by these and other amazing guests. Today, our focus stays squarely on food. But the stakes are raised. For you see, we're about to meet Foodshare, an organization whose purpose it is to provide good, healthy food for all. It's an ambitious project that is daring to look food insecurity in the eye and boldly say, not today, not anymore. As part of its complex and caring structure are cooking programs, community-led initiatives, and innovative ways to grow, shop, and consume produce. At its center lie a group of intensely devout and daring individuals people who believe in listening to lead. On the whole, it's an ecosystem acutely designed to help bring a fair share of justice to the food space. Good morning, good day, or good evening, and welcome to 54 Lights. This show is designed to elevate black voices through authentically told stories of Africans African descendants, or allies of the community. For those of you who don't know, my name is Kandwani Mwase, Ethiopian-born, Canadian-raised, and proudly Malawian. I live in the world of business, but find inspiration, energy, and purpose in creative spaces. This show is my passionate pursuit to better understand what shapes and defines culture. It is the manifestation, if you will, of my curiosity. As I mentioned before, you're in for a mindful treat. The next episode is part one of Path to Plate, Unpacking the Food System, and features my talk with Paul Taylor, the charismatic, humble, and deeply thoughtful executive director of Foodshare. Paul is a remarkable individual who, despite his impressive individual nature, is the first to recognize and appreciate those around him. From his familial roots to his workplace compatriots, 
Paul's commitment to food systems seems to have been born of and destined for a thriving community. Here is part one of that conversation. You know, every time I'm asked uh, who I am, I think the, um, the first thing that I do or the first thing that I think about at least um, are the kind of people that came before me. So um, I think about Rebecca Thompson, who was my great grandmother. I think about uh, Maisie Burt, who was my grandmother. And I think about Bernadine Taylor, my mom. And these are three black women that have had such an important role in helping uh, define who I am, define where me and my family and my ancestors are going and where we've come from. And I, I, I draw a lot of strength in recognizing that who I am is a part of a longer tradition of people that um, have fought uphill uh, for the betterment of their communities, for the betterment uh, of folks that look like us, and ultimately for the betterment of society. So I am forever grateful to, to my ancestors, and in particular, those three Black women, uh, because also I think Black women are under-celebrated, under-recognized, and under-appreciated for the role that they play in, in, in Black communities. Uh, all of them also um, low-income women who may do with the little that they had to not only feed their families, but also to feed their communities. You know, my grandmother, um, Maisie, she, you know, with a very little bit that they had, had lineups of children in the neighborhood, in the community, showing up at her doorstep for lunch because she was resolute in, in her belief that, you know, everybody had to eat and deserve food to eat, especially children. You know, so she really is so much a part of who I am. And I can, in terms of the geography of where we've come from, I can trace my family back to St. Kitts and Nevis, a uh, tiny island in the Caribbean. In fact, my family's originally, you know, as far back as I can trace it, to, to, to Nevis, uh, which has a population of just over 10,000 people. So an island with, uh, with a small population. You spoke so profoundly about your lineage and so profoundly about the women in your life, which I've, I've, I find really uh, refreshing. Is that what has inspired you to get into this space, like the food justice space? You know, actually, I'll, I'll probably maybe start answering that question with my mother and my, uh, my experiences being raised by, by my mom. Um, and I recognize the things that caused us to struggle with food insecurity and access to food and poverty. They were, you know, when I really unwrap what was going on, you know, these were things, these were political choices. These were injustices that have been imposed upon my family and countless others. And these, these are, are also deeply tied to racism and patriarchy and the way that those organizing principles affect families like, um, like my family growing up. So I think for me, in order to do this work and to engage in this work meaningfully, it's really meant a lot to work with a team of people that recognizes and goes a step beyond kind of the emergency response and says, you know, they are structural, there are systems that act as, as barriers. And those are systems that we create and we uphold in various ways that in order to do this work, we need to acknowledge that 
food justice or food injustices, I should say, are based on oppressive organizing principles like white supremacy, colonialism, anti-indigeneity, ableism, classism. And we can't do this kind of work without recognizing those pieces. So it's really, you know, those childhood experiences and one that, you know, stays with me and I talk about pretty often because it was a pretty seminal point in, in, in my life was when growing up as a child, um, uh, uh, raised by a, a single mom, as I mentioned, on social assistance, you know, I was 13 years old when uh, this province elected a premier, a conservative premier named Mike Harris, who one of the first things he did was he cut welfare by 22%. And for me, that inspired me to ask a whole bunch of questions. The first being why uh, is my mother crying? Why is my mother um, uh, worried and stressed about what life is gonna be like for us after this? And then understanding and trying to put the pieces together, but realizing that at the same time that this politician is um, cutting welfare, uh, so the folks that have been made the most vulnerable, uh, cutting the amount of money that they receive by 22%, he's also reducing taxes. Um, so again, for me, these, um, uh, these are clear political choices. I recognize that in our work at FoodShare, we've got to not only think about those, those um, oppressive organizing principles, but also recognize how those, those principles inform whose lived experience gets seen, who's, um, for whom public policy gets developed. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting um, perspective and leap. I, I, I love the way you unpack that. And, and so I have a question for you about what you had said before about emergency response, right? Uh, it, 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 I'm paraphrasing a little bit, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but paraphrasing about emergency response, you want to go beyond that a little bit deeper than that to get to the systematic uh, structural issues that are really causing all of these impacts. The, the, uh, the tendency would be to run towards the to, to the emergency, to, to not look past the burning bridge or the burning fire, right? And mm -hmm. to not unpack and, and take the step that you did, which was to say, well, wait a minute, you know, it's not only that it's a cut of 20%, but it's a cut of 20% in tandem with a decrease in taxes. So it's almost like the bookends of those two are impacting two different, very different people. So in the work that you do, not only at Food Share, but just in general, Paul, how have you been able to sort of take that step back and, and, and how important is it in the work that you do to do that, to take that step back and say, let's look at the aggregate here. That's a great question. And I think even before I answer that, I want to acknowledge that, you know, I don't, I, uh, there, there are people who are committed to emergency response and I get where they're coming from. Um, so I don't want to dismiss the work mm -hmm. that they do. Mm -hmm. uh, mutual aid has been a tradition in our communities for generations, and it's had to have been a, a, a tradition in our communities. But I think it is also important to have that, that analysis, especially when we have the time, the capacity, and energy to be able to, to think beyond the crisis. But you know, I think part of the reason that this is so critical is because our communities have been existing in this crisis forever. 
you know, these are the things that capitalism and all of those other uh, oppressive organizing principles that I talked about earlier have imposed upon our communities. So for me, it's become absolutely critical for me to use my energy, my, my, my time uh, to really get at the crux of those, those issues, not just out in the world and how, you know, we think about and, and, and analyze issues, but also how it shows up, how those organize, those oppressive organizing principles show up in my work at Food Share. My colleagues and I are all really committed to doing everything we can to dismantle the way you know, white supremacy um, and all of these things show up in our in our workplace. And I and, and unfortunately, I feel like there are, you know, far too few organizations that recognize that that work is is not limited to a black square uh, or nice words, but that is work. That is work every single day that requires resources, that requires vigilance, uh, and it takes time because these issues have been deeply embedded. So I think it's critical. Yeah, uh, very well put, obviously. Um, you're, you're well versed in the area, and I, I wanted to maybe double click or ask you to double click on that, that comment about time. It, it feels like the past 18 months feel like they've been. Uh, a, a, a critical inflection point in this march towards at least recognizing, broadly recognizing anti-Black racism, broadly recognizing injustice, broadly recognizing inequities in society at large, be it for Indigenous communities, obviously, which has flared recently, and obviously those in, 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 the, in the BIPOC community at large. On your website or on the FoodShare website, I, I found a quote which was, which was brilliant, which says, it's, it's our time to lead. And so I, my question to you, Paul, is why now? And do you on like genuinely feel, uh, this is sort of a leading question, but do you, do you genuinely feel that organizations now are committed to do, to go beyond the black square? Yeah, I think there's a, a wide diversity of response uh, to that question. I think some, some are more willing and others, um, are not willing to give up the power, are not willing to invest the resources and the time that it takes to go beyond a black square and some nice statements. But, you know, going back to the first part of your question, you know, it's our time to lead and whether or not what makes, you know, now really um, particular. And I think it's really important that maybe I'll, the, 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 the I'll take a step back actually. And I was having a conversation the other day with some folks and I was listening to people talk about, nonprofit leaders talk about how important it is to make sure that um, we are engaging nonprofits and charities are engaging communities and we're not being extractive. And you know, in that moment, I realized that that is actually that frame, that way of thinking, that way of looking at the, the realities of what's happening is actually problematic and part of the problem. The fact that we are recognizing, and often it's middle-class white people and wealthier in positions of leadership, recognizing that they're doing a disservice and that more needs to be done, or, or sorry, recognizing also that the communities that they're meant to be allied with, working alongside, supporting, are not in the organizations. 
And that to me is key. We have been outside of the solution finding spaces for far too long. And by we, I mean those most affected by these issues uh, that uh, a bunch of charities and nonprofit organizations have popped up over the last 30 years have been tasked with addressing. We have been excluded from policymaking in meaningful ways. So I really think this is a critical moment and it's now our time to lead because the leadership that we've seen over you know, the last uh, how many have ever hundreds of years has actually not has caused the problems that we're in. So I think it's really important that communities and those most affected and activists and organizers we need to be leading uh, the change. Social movements need to be accessing political power and in doing so, pushing back against the power structures that have historically and that continue to harm many and have led to the rise, um, you know, rising inequality, have led to the climate crisis and, and the ongoing state sanctioned violence imposed on Indigenous people and Black Canadians and other racialized folks. You know, now is different, now is critical because. For, for one, climate change. We need to do what the science dictates, you know? Mm -hmm. Anything less is dooming us to failure. We can't rely on the type of leadership that got us into this problem to solve this problem. I also think, you know, as we think about the pandemic, you know, we're, we're, we're still, despite what some feel and, and might think, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> And, and, and what the pandemic has done, I think also why I think this moment now is important is the pandemic has shown us something pretty special and unique. It's shown us what's possible when governments prioritize fighting a threat. The worrisome part about that is right, right after just having had shown us what it means to have a whole of government approach to really mobilize to fight an existential threat, things seem to be sliding back into business as usual. Right. And, and you know, I, I think we're, we're, we're defaulting again to our low expectations of government in terms of addressing wicked issues. So I think now is so important and we need to reject performative acts for reconciliation, justice. We really need so much more. And like I say, we can't rely on the type of leadership that we've seen uh, to date. Yeah, that's so it feels to me, if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, Paul, that there's a, a level of cautious optimism. Is that is that a fair uh, statement to make in terms of where we are in this inflection point? Well, you know, I think uh, uh, I often reflect that my mother uh, raised an optimist, you know, so I will always have some optimism. Um, but I think the, the path to achieving the things that we believe are possible, the things that I, I know are possible, the things that I hear from communities every day, folks in community every day are possible. We can't rely on the same tactics that we've yeah. relied on. Um, I mean, so it's what got us here, right? To your point. Exactly. But even in our response, you know, and it goes back to the piece around the mutual aid, like we, we, we and, the, and the ongoing emergency support, that's critical. And that legacy comes from black women like my grandmother and great grandmother that I spoke about. But we've also got to be, I think, thinking about different tactics to say, actually, we've been excluded for far too long. And we're here for our time, we're here for our space, and we're here to access the resources available 
to community that should be available to communities to address these issues. So that's what gets me optimistic when I when I hear about people and organizations willing to put themselves on the line to really challenge the status quo in meaningful ways. When I was doing a little bit of, of background research of, about you, I, I I sort of, you know, I penned down and you know anti-poverty activist, and then I put you know food justice crusader, and then I put down. Uh, you know, just community leader. And then, like, so I put down quite a few different things and then, you know, which is unfair because we, you know, we want to simplify people and put them in boxes. And so I apologize for the, 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 the lack of complexity of this question, but I will still ask it. And that is, do you see yourself as a food, uh, an anti-poverty activist? Do you see yourself as a food justice uh, crusader? W what does Paul think Paul is or what does Paul want the world to see Paul as? Oh, that's a good question. But I'll tell you, I'm not really that concerned uh, with that. Um, you know, pick any one of, the, of, of those uh, and run with them. I just want to get some shit done. I've got a <laughs> limited amount of time on this planet like we all do. And I have an incredible amount of privilege despite growing up as a poor person. I'm also a man. I also, you know, interact with uh, a more class privilege than when I was a child. So I want to use all of that energy, all of that privilege uh, and my time on this planet to just get some shit done because there are families that are struggling so much more than I struggled and my family struggled when I was a kid and they don't have to do that. They absolutely don't have to do that. So there you have it. The conversation continues. I suggest you subscribe so you don't miss the upcoming part two of this great and important conversation. Part of our show was recorded and produced at Culturalite Studios, the soundstage and auditory office of 54 Lights. Music for this episode was composed, played, and enjoyed with permission by my friend at E-Roll Beats. Special thanks to my new friends at FoodShare and, of course, to the indomitable Paul Taylor. Paul, your leadership, poise, and perspective are critical in these times. If you like what you've heard, there's more. Not only should you tune in next week for part two of this discourse, but you should feel free to jump to our previous episodes on food, food sustainability, and for those that want a great meal, food preparation, and food dedication. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss any of our episodes, be they past, present, or those yet to come. Remember that you can find us wherever you do your listening, from iTunes to Spotify to Google Podcasts and many, many more. And of course, if you enjoy some social sprinkled in with your experience, please find us on Instagram under our handle, Crowd54. Listen, like, and share. This is your privileged host, Kunduan Mwase. Until we meet again, thank you for listening.